Hello, hello, immer rein in die gute Stube. Don't be a sulky liver sausage, as they say in Germany. We have some fine infotainment for you today. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast that investigates the histories and mysteries of British-German relations. No Stein will be left unturned, no expenses eingespart. But be warned, there's nothing proportional about our representation. Wait, 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 hang on a minute. What happened to the sun loungers? <laughs> Very original, Oliver. I'm sure no Briton has ever asked the German that particular question before. No, seriously. What happened to that hilarious opening line of yours? You know, the one that goes, break out your beach towel, and so on. <laughs> All right, Otto von Quizmark. Um, I was rather hoping I could disappear that line quietly, but since you ask, when we revealed the story of, uh, you know, the Germans and the sun loungers in last week's episode, um, I felt it lost its mystique a little bit. Um, and I also rather suspect that our British listeners were just too polite to tell us what they really thought about it. Well, speaking of polite Britons, that prime specimen of one over there is Oliver Moody, a British journalist based in Berlin. And that sulky liver sausage at the other end is Katja Hoyer, a German-born historian living in Sussex. And this week, we're going to shine a light into some of the darker crevices of Germany's post-war history and the role that Britain played in it. And I think there are two reasons why this period is absolutely fascinating, particularly from today's perspective. And the first is, there's a lot of concern in the air, particularly since the start of the pandemic, that liberal democracy is losing a kind of ideological competition with autocracy and dictatorship. And you can't, you can barely move for all these magazine articles and books talking about how democracies die and degenerate into authoritarian nightmares. But here we have maybe the strongest example in history of the opposite. Of somebody taking um, a totalitarian society and deprogramming it and creating a robust liberal democracy. Um, and the other thing that I think is, is great about this period is you kind of instinctively think, all right, it was more than three quarters of a century ago. There have been tens of thousands of books written about the Third Reich. We would have done it all to death by now, but we really haven't. It's such a, a live field of scholarship. Um, so just, just this week... Uh, Christoph Zaffeling at um, Erlangen-Nuremberg University, who's one of Germany's uh, most impressive experts on the modern history of the justice system, published a study on um, the Federal Prosecutor's Office from the 50s to the mid-1970s. So this is the um, West German authority that handles all of the biggest criminal cases where the country's national security is at stake. And it turns out that during this period, 75% of the senior staff were ex-Nazis. And in 1966 alone, so it's 21 years after the end of the Second World War, 10 out of the 11 top prosecutors had been members of the Nazi party. And I think there's a certain tendency in Germany today to be quite kind of inured and shoulder-struggy about this stuff. But I, I still find it pretty shocking. And I kind of think it should be shocking. No, I think it is as well. And, and many Germans are shocked as well about it. Perhaps not the majority, as you say, that tends to sort of be this attitude now. Well, it's all done. They've all died out. Now, what does it matter? Um, but it does matter for the institutions that, that sprang out of these very dark and dodgy um, origins. And also it, it provides longer lessons for history, I think, in terms of, you know, striking... Um, compromises between the pragmatic and the, and the ideal, really, and to what extent that is acceptable. But perhaps we should start um, with the roots of the entire problems and, and maybe go back to where it all started. So after the Second World War, one of the very, very few things that the four occupying powers of Germany 
um, namely Russia, um, the US, Britain and France could agree on was that the country needed to be denazified, um, which was the, the term that they used at the uh, Potsdam conference in the summer of 1945 after the war was was won. Um, but they hadn't really set out exactly what that should look like. Um, and part of the problem was that Germany um, and, and the Nazification of Germany was seen very differently by all of the four powers. So the French, for example, um, having seen three German invasions, so you had the, the, the Franco-Prussian War um, of, of 1870, um, then the uh, obviously the First World War and then the Second World War, um, and they'd seen all of those things on their own soil um, and, and obviously felt still very bitter and resentful about that. They just assumed that it was a German thing. There was nothing you could do to denazify the Germans because they're naturally like that. And this is just the pinnacle of sort of Germanness, really. And, and they'd moved in that direction to them. It's just one step at a time, kind of from the Franco-Prussian War to the First World War to the Second World War. And so denazification seemed a completely pointless exercise. You might as well have called it the, the de-Germanification or whatever of Germany. Um, whilst, for instance, the Russians peculiarly, I mean, when you think that they, they had basically the, the horrifying, the absolutely horrifying end of the, of the Second World War, with all of this deregulated, um, you know, war of, of annihilation in the East. And yet Stalin famously said that the Hitlers come and go, but the German people stay, but by which he, he expressed a certain sort of admiration for Germany and Germanness, which he'd always felt even during the war. So to him, it's possible to re-educate the Germans. So the Russians spun it basically that way that the elites kind of just uh, pushed the poor German people in the wrong direction. Um, and uh, the Americans changed a little bit. Initially, they were also incredibly hostile and saw it as a sort of you know German extreme of militarism, but then pretty quickly changed their minds on it and realized actually once they were on the ground that you know the German civilians were actually quite sort of meek and and <laughs> easily uh, you know told what to do and so on and, and could basically be re-educated. Um, and the Brits took a pretty pragmatic uh, approach basically in the sense that the, it may not have been nice what the Germans did, but they were were useful. And so you get four completely different um, approaches. But what they agreed on all of them is that the first step needed to be the um, the highest ranking Nazis to put them on on trial. I love all the national stereotypes that are on display here. <laughs> you know, the, the Russian belief in uh, the the um, elites remoulding the population, and then this kind of British pragmatism, and the, the French belief that there's just no redemption ever for the Germans. <laughs> it's stuck in a perpetual cycle of original sin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it, I'm not sure they, you know, took them quite a while to to get out of that habit. It's basically only the the tying together within the EU that eventually convinced them otherwise. Mostly. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, you have, quite soon after the war, um, a series of trials of people who've been high-ranking officials in the Third Reich um, that are mainly organised by the um, occupying military powers. The most famous of those is the um, International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg, the first of the Nuremberg trials. They rounded up two dozen of the most egregious villains, um, the likes of Rudolf Hess, Hermann Goering, Albert Speer, von Ribbentrop, Rosenberg. Um, but there, there were also um, 12 other Nuremberg trials, which, which people don't really remember, where they also prosecuted a lot of the regime's senior doctors and judges and captains of industry. And then um, in 1948, you have the, the Wilhelmstrasse trial uh, with a bunch of 
second ranking Nazis. And then, I'm, this is putting it a little bit crudely, but not that much, nothing. For 10 years, they did you just completely give up? I think psychologically it was quite an interesting phenomenon as well because when you do eventually get to the Auschwitz trials later, it comes almost as a shock to the Germans that, um, you know, they, they sort of figured, oh, this was done with now and, and you know, all of the bad guys had been um, punished and, and, you know, what was this about, about now? And there was quite a lot of resistance exactly for that reason, um, which I always find interesting from a, from a sort of psychological point of view. If anything, actually, I mean, initially a lot of people actually agreed with the Nuremberg trials in Germany. Um, and sort of felt that, you know, it, it fed into the narrative that Germans were just led astray and now those that had done that needed to be punished and let the rest of the Germans just recover. Um, but it also allowed them a way out because once you have people actually hung for their crimes, there was a an assumption that, you know, the, the crimes had been paid for. Why should the rest of the German population now uh, suffer? Um, and I think that that gap that you just described um of high-profile cases um, served that narrative, I think, that Germans just assumed this was done with now, why bother with it? Well, wasn't there also polling conducted at the time that showed massive public opposition in, in Germany to the Nuremberg trials? And this, this whole idea that it was victor's justice imposed on the German people by... Um, not through any moral authority, but simply by the people that had won the war. Yeah, and it got worse um, over time. Initially, there was still some um, support for it, so right from the beginning. Um, but then as the trials dragged on and on, because they were so long as well, people just felt that this was like a show trial, effectively, which is also why a lot of people wonder why so many of these um, early cases uh, got uh, an acquittal. Um, you know, you, you got people mm. basically uh, where there was more than enough um you know, sort of public evidence out there where people knew what they'd done. Um, and yet the judges turned around at the end and said, you know, there's not enough evidence. We, we have to let them go. Um, and, and that was felt by the international community to be very lenient, whilst the Germans kind of just took it as a, a you know, sign that, OK, there, you know, there clearly isn't enough evidence. So the others are, you know, it's, it's sort of victor's justice. The, the other surveys that the Americans did, they're shocking as well. So they were trying to work out in in 1946 what people's attitudes were and they structured based on their uh, findings so they, they interviewed uh, over 3,000 Germans um, and, and structured society according to this um, uh, outcome into, into five categories so there were those with few prejudices <laughs> and that's one fifth 20%. Then you had nationalists, another 20%. Then racists, another 20%. <laughs> Anti-Semites, another 20%. And then stronger anti-Semites, another 20%. So you basically... Are you a nationalist, a racist, <laughs> or an anti-Semite? Or a strong anti-Semite. Um, yeah, and, and that the outcome of that was, was shocking. So Berlin had some of the lowest percentages of people classified as racist and anti-Semites, only 45%. Um, and then you had also interesting uh, differences between men and women. So interestingly enough, women expressed much stronger anti-Semitic opinions than men. So you had 67% of German women being anti-Semites or classed as anti-Semites um, compared to 50% of men and so on. And that didn't really change. I mean, when you look at it a few years later, when they were supposed to be uh, like denazified, they did another one in 1950. And even, um, sorry, 1952, um, and even then 37% of Germans still thought that Germany would be better off without Jews. Um, 
and 25% still said that Hitler would be seen as a hero if it hadn't been for the Holocaust. Um, which, you know, is shocking given that by that point they'd had like six, seven years of, of supposed denazification going on. So the population is, is pretty unreconstructed deep into the 1950s and, and the government is really not, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, but really not pursuing denazification with its best efforts. And ultimately, I think one of the really big things that causes this to start to shift is Israel. Because uh, in 1960, Mossad, the Israeli secret service, sends um, a crack team of agents to Argentina and they scoop up Adolf Eichmann, who um, had coordinated a lot of the logistics in the Holocaust. He wasn't quite the mastermind of the Holocaust that he was later made out to have been, uh, but he wasn't a good guy. And um, he's put on trial in Jerusalem. And the Eichmann trial is a big deal for all sorts of reasons. You could do a whole podcast series on it. But for our purposes, one of the biggest effects is the pressure that it puts on Bonn, the West German capital, to start going after ex-Nazis itself. And so after the Eichmann trial, uh, in the 1960s, you have a wave of indigenous West German Nazi prosecutions. Um, the most important of which you've just mentioned are the um, Frankfurt-Auschwitz trials, which are led by one of my personal heroes, um, Fritz Bauer, this German prosecutor had been trying and failing to get his compatriots to take denazification seriously for decades. Yeah, it's so interesting when you read the protocols from those uh, trials as well. He just gets so frustrated and just loses his temper by German standards, that is. Um, you know, quite a lot of the time where suddenly he just snaps at one of the defendants, you know, whether they can't see what they've done is wrong, um, you know, or even at the defense as well, which is very unusual. German German courts tend to be extremely formal, even by international standards. And then for him to lose his temper like that, you, you can just sense the frustration like leaping off the off the pages with um, with that. And it's also a problem because at that point you had an Adenauer regime in, in power since 1949 um, and he had sort of given the impression with uh, this kind of restitution policy that he put in place whereby the civil service were all invited in. So if you were a Nazi civil servant um, and you sort of repented, um, you were allowed back into the German civil service. The same goes for a lot of policemen, um, lawyers, as you mentioned earlier, the entire legal uh, profession was basically invited back in and it's given I thought it gave I think the West German population a sense of this is all done now we're all forgiven for this and we're just creating this new German society together no questions asked about your yeah. past so to be fair these guys were probably only nationalist racists and anti-semites <laughs> As opposed they, to they, strong they, anti-Semites. They may, they may have weeded out the strong anti-Semites. <laughs> yeah, but I think that, you know, that just gave gave the German society the idea that this is all done with now and, and why rake over things again. You hear that sentence a lot as well. So when I was younger and there were still mm. a lot of older people about who were um, alive during the Nazi years, even if you ask them a question then, say like back in the 90s or in the 80s, they, they still reacted with a lot of resentment to the idea that you were even asking that question. You know, always the sentence, why why go over these things again? They're, they're done mm. now. Um, and I think that applied to the whole of West German society. Yeah, and um, this was really coming from the top as well. So um, Konrad Adenauer, who you just mentioned, the, the sort of Titanic first post-war chancellor of, of West Germany, um, famously said in the Bundestag that you needed to put a stop to the, what he called Nazi Riecherei, like the sniffing after Nazis. And then um, he said equally famously, you can't chuck out dirty water until you have clean water. In other words, um, there's no reason to kind of purge 
these guys with really dodgy pasts until we've got a, a you know a completely pure um, elite from which to draw our, our, our officials today. And um, a lot of that was prompted by Adnell's right hand man, um, whom I'm a bit obsessed with. He was called Hans Globke, and I did a investigative podcast on him for the Times earlier this year. It's called The Spider in the Web, if you want to look it up. And Globke had been um, a, a lawyer and a senior civil servant in the Reich Interior Ministry. Uh, he was never technically a Nazi because they turned down his application for party membership. But um, he did play a very significant role in shaping the um, application of the 1935 Nuremberg race laws and a lot of the subsequent legal basis for the Holocaust. And um, he sort of gets a clean bill of health at the end of the Second World War. And the CIA actually says this guy is one of the crown jewels that we want to help rebuild West Germany. So he just comes back completely unpunished. Um, and Adenau brings him in as this kind of ultra superhuman administrator who knows where all the bodies are buried, knows all the dark arts of statecraft, makes him his chief of staff. And it's a massively controversial decision at the time. But Globke was there, essentially the second most powerful man in Germany until um, the early 1960s. Yeah, and I mean, if, if it's that much of a problem to denazify at the top, um, you know, with Adenauer's concerns that you can't rebuild society unless you have people who know what they're doing and anybody who knew what they were doing did that very same thing under the Nazis and therefore was going to be a problem. Um, then you can only imagine what happened a bit lower down, you know, think of, of people like uh, doctors, teachers... Um, you know, anybody who's got any role to play in society played exactly the same. Journalists, indeed. (laughs) Actually, historians as well. Lots lots and lots of Nazi historians out there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, So any sort of skill that you had, you know, trying to weed that out. And and this is effectively what they what they did in the East. So that was one of the one of the problems that the uh, early GDR struggled with in East Germany is that the Russians did take the approach that all of these people need to go. They weren't 100 percent thorough with it so there were people that they kept but on the whole society was was weeded out um a lot lot more um thoroughly so for example teachers were just completely like the the entire body of teachers were just pretty much sacked and 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 those like new teachers Neulehrer, as they were called um installed so I, I talked to a guy from my new gdr book um the other day who's, who's now in his late 80s uh, who came from East Prussia, he was a refugee um, in, in 1945, um, had been a farmer in East Prussia, just about, he was only sort of 16 or 17, I think, at the time. So had only just started, basically, um, to, to learn his craft there. And then they told him, you're going to be a teacher now. So he did a three-month course. And then he stood there in front of 18-year-olds, you know, teaching them, like, sort of high-level maths. And, and you just wonder how, how that was ever going to work. And they did the same with lawyers, you know, very quick training, um, the only profession where that didn't really work in their eyes was uh, medicine. Um, and so they stuck with a lot of the uh, Nazi um, doctors and medical personnel. But other than that, um, it's, it's just astonishing. The U.S. initially tried that as well in their zone. They were, they were meant to be really, really thorough. Um, and but, but found but what they did is basically they asked people, they gave people a questionnaire, the so-called Fragebogen. Um, with over 100 questions in it about party membership and, and affiliation with Nazi groups and so on. Um, and based on that, they wanted to decide who needed to be charged. Um, and they found out that a quarter of their entire zone were chargeable cases, as in should have gone in front of a tribunal, which is for obvious reasons completely 
uh, ludicrous and was never going to happen. And so they just abandoned the whole thing. They tried to make the Brits do the same thing. But, uh, you know, as we were saying earlier, that British pragmatism was just, uh, you know, saying to them, what, why should we try and process like literally millions of these uh, fragabogans if, if the outcome is going to be we can't do anything about it. So they didn't. Yeah, and I, I think ultimately the, the British approach ended up becoming the uh, the most sort of paradigmatic and successful of the three um, West German zones. Yeah, certainly the one that um, in the long run perhaps worked the best, but only because they completely looked the other way and just assumed that if you reintegrate Nazis back into uh, life, they would automatically ad- ad- adapt to the conditions. So the assumption was to some extent they'd, they'd perhaps done the same with Nazis and they may not all have been 100% Nazis, but those were the sorts of people for careerist reasons will, will just adapt to whatever system they find in front of them. And whether you find that reprehensible or not, it's a useful quality to have um, in, in a worker or in an employee. And so the assumption was that if you could uh, kind of turn your flag into a Nazi one, you know, at, at hoc in 1933, then perhaps you can adopt the German colours again in 1949. And that worked to a, you know, to a large extent, just because those were the very people who were quite happy to give up their their ideology um but oliver you are in berlin at the moment and you've covered quite a bit on the on the subject how would you describe the approach of the current german government towards its sort of somewhat murky origins i'd say ambivalent um on the so massively to the credit of angela merkel's government um a couple of years ago it funded and commissioned the first ever systematic program of state-sponsored studies into what had been going on with Adenauer's government and the remnants of the Nazi regime. And um, those reports are going to start coming out probably next year. And I'm really excited to see what's in them. But as the words first ever tell you in that last sentence, it's also a really uncomfortable subject, um, particularly for Merkel's Christian Democrats, the party of Adenauer, because it casts a really grim light on some of the foundational myths of post-war Germany that persist today. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, which is uh, the the BND, um, German Foreign Intelligence Agency, which was founded by um, a former Wehrmacht intelligence officer called Meinhard Galen, who was one of Globke's mates, and um, they formed the kind of uh, anti-British lobby in the Adenauer government. Um, and a few years ago, the BND did something that was, as far as I'm aware, unprecedented for a modern secret service, which was they allowed several dozen leading historians to go into their archives and write books about what they've been up to from 1945 to 1968, which is great. All power to them. It's an amazing thing to do. But in collaboration with Merkel's chancellery, they've also been censoring some of the findings to such an extent that um, the most recent one of these books um, on the BND's overseas intelligence operations begins with an absolute screed of complaint about all of the stuff they've had to scrub out and redact. And at one point in the book, the historians tried to write a chapter about this incredible Hollywood-worthy story of an ex-SS officer that the BND had recruited in Central America. And this guy went totally rogue. He was infiltrating guerrilla groups. He was getting into shootouts. He was mounting military false flag operations without telling his handlers. And eventually the agency had to beg him to stop. Um, And the whole thing has just been um, wiped out of the book by the censors. They couldn't even um, give the guy his code name. Um, because his identity was apparently protect, protected by German privacy law. Yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised how um, raw all of this still is. I mean, I think it's to do with the fact that the current generation of CDU politicians 
reach back that far. So if you think somebody like Angela Merkel, for example, um, who's yes only became become the or only became the chancellor in two thousand five, but her own um, you know like sort of consciousness of West German politics stems from the Cold War era, as does a lot of the you know the people that are now sort of in their fifties and sixties have still got this Cold War mindset of the of the comparison of the two Germanys, and any and any sort of undermining of the myth that West Germany was. Um, the sort of pure shining example of what Germany could be like after the the Second World War and how you can recover from dictatorships, as opposed to what happened in the East, um, you know, which is always used as a sort of counterfoil to that. This is a this is another dictatorship that Germany has slipped into. Anything that undermines that is very very uncomfortable for that generation of Germans who needed that. Um, myth and grew up in it um, and needed West Germany to be whiter than white. And as you say, particularly the CDU likes this idea they rebuilt uh, Germany. Their their headquarters in Berlin is called the Konrad Adenauer House um, after him. You know, and anything that ch- um, chips away at this um, kind of reputation as, as the stable democracy that was instantly installed supposedly in 1949 is uncomfortable and you would imagine once you get younger a younger generation in that you know sort of uh, grew up and, and is is um shaped by by the post reunification um kind of era you would imagine they 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 will hopefully be a little bit less uh, uncomfortable with this whole thing and allow more investigation just to illustrate that you know that um there is actually a, a full length portrait of of Globke the the sort of ex third reich official we were talking about earlier um, in Merkel's chancery, alongside um, all the other post-war chiefs of staff, um, because they didn't want to scrub them out. Mm. And all they've done is just put this little plaque underneath that says, um, that it just mentions his role in the, in the Nuremberg race laws and so forth. Maintain and explain, eh? <laughs> Right. Um, I think it's fair to say that Germany's reckoning with itself uh, has a long way to go still, just like this episode of Tommy's and Jerry's. Stay tuned for more on denazification with our expert guest. Don't go anywhere. This advert break pays for Oliver's next currywurst. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Tommy's and Jerry's, the British-German podcast that is too grown up for beach towel jokes. If you have any other suggestions on how the show can be further improved, please get in touch on Twitter. Our handle is at Tommy's Jerry's, or you can reach us on our personal accounts. This week, we would like to give a special mention to A.D. Bond, a hardworking postie who listens to us when he delivers your mail and still always has some nice words left to us at the end of his hard day's work. And we have another hardworking man with messages to deliver on the show today. Um, we are very much delighted to be joined by the distinguished modern historian Frederick Taylor. Fred read History and Modern Languages at Oxford and did postgraduate work at Sussex University. He's the author of the acclaimed bestseller Dresden and edited and translated the Goebbels Diaries. And more personally for today's purposes, he has also written a book called Exercising Hitler, The Occupation and Denazification of Germany which I can strongly recommend to anyone who's interested in this subject. Fred, welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's. Good to be here. The title of your book is sort of striking and discomforting in equal measure. Um, what was it that made you reach for the exorcism metaphor to describe denazification? Well, because Nazism was not just a political movement, but a state of mind, so to speak, I think, is really what struck me. And... Of course, when you have something like denazification, all sorts of routines were gone through by the occupied powers and the occupied alike in order to get through that era. But really what we're talking about is, in the shorter and the longer term, changing a nation's mind, if you will, changing parts of its spirit um, over to something else from what had caused the nightmare of the last... Um, 12 years until 1945 in, for Germany and later, later, latterly, of course, also for the rest of Europe. So it seemed to me that was a kind of an appropriate uh, verb, a little, a little dramatic, but, you know, I think it's appropriate. It starts you thinking about something else other than just routines. Uh, yes, and do you, do you feel when the um, Allies obviously, you know, appreciated the idea as well that there, there was a whole society involved in this and not just the elites. Um, what was specifically the attitude uh, to this process of denazification in the British occupied zone? Well, the, the, I think they were all slightly different, actually, in the four zones. Um, basically, they had to deal with the problem of a defeated country, how to run it, how to occupy it, how to govern it, how to feed it how to, in some way, get it back to work. Of course, there were whole uh, differing ideas about what the Germans should be doing in the future. You had the Morgenthau plan, which planned to turn Germany into a big farm uh, and take away all its industry. That didn't last all that long, but it was influential for a while. And I guess you had the Americans um, were quite keen on spreading democracy in the way that our American cousins so often are. I know, I'm married to one. Uh, you had the French, who uh, were a teeny bit vengeful, um, but also had a certain kind of Jacobin revolutionary pride, a desire to finally convince those people across the Rhine that really, you know, the way to run their country was something very similar to the way France was run. And uh, you had the Russians, and the Russians are the Russians, and they 
had a very difficult beginning, a very cruel beginning, a very violent beginning uh, during the period of the actual invasion of Russia, uh, of Germany rather. Um, you know, there were mass rapes, there were murders, there were thefts, there was, it, 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 it was not pleasant for the Germans the way the Russians came in there. But once they got there, they did actually feed their Germans and helped by the fact they had a whole lot of tame communists who could be flown in to run the place, who spoke German and, and, and knew the ropes. Um, they, they, they also had a kind of theology uh, about Nazism being the late stage of capitalism, the decadent stage of capitalism. Therefore, in a sense, everybody was responsible. Nobody was responsible. History was responsible, if you will. So apart from knocking off a few major Nazis, I mean, you, they even ended up with a political party for repentant ex-Nazis called the NDPD, uh, which um, none, of the, none of the other occupying powers had. And now the Brits, we get down to us when we came over there. Um, Britain was itself a bit of a mess at the time. I mean, it had won the war. It had bankrupted itself. Uh, it had quite harsh rationing still, and it got worse, actually, as we will find out. Um, a lot of people didn't like the Germans at all. There was a lot of traditional energy going back to the First War, particularly not necessarily before, because we'd had quite relations, close relations with Germany before that. Um, and basically, you could see in the early days, with Montgomery, of course, took over from being commander-in-chief of, of the British Army to being also the governor of the British zone of Germany. And basically, when you looked at the problems they had, which we could discuss next, perhaps, in, a, in, in the British zone that was quite specific to the British zone, the main thing, pretty quickly, was obviously how the hell to make it work. Because it was, of the four zones, possibly the hardest to govern for an occupying power, particularly one which is self-impoverished and, and slightly confused about its future role. So would you mind explaining what specifically did go wrong in the British zone that was particular to that region? Well, what was particular to that region, apart from the fact that it ended up being uh, handed over to the British to run, it was the largest in terms of population, about 22 million people, with uh, a whole bunch of, of course, refugees from the uh, Polish and Soviet-occupied parts of the old Germany um, uh, being pushed into it for the first year or two after the war in any case. Um, a lot of them coming straight from the east and across the North German plain and landing up in Lower Saxony and Schleswig-Holstein, which were both in the British zone. Um, but you also had the fact that it had a huge urban population. It had Hamburg, it had Dusseldorf, it had Cologne, it had um, uh, particularly uh, Hanover, it had the Ruhr area particularly which, of course, had been this enormously productive, the kind of so-called, the, the great arms centre for the uh, the Nazi regime and, and indeed the Wilhelmine regime during the First World War, which by the end of the war had been so badly battered and bombed. I mean, the Ruhr was running clean for the first time in 100 years in the spring of 1945, and there was a reason for that because there wasn't much manufacturing going on by that point. So you had that population as well, which is about 3 million. So you've got 2.0 2. million people in Hamburg. You've got, uh, you know, getting on for a million people in the Cologne area. Uh, you've got Hanover, half a million. And it wasn't really that much. As you got into Lower Saxony, particularly in Westphalia, there was some agricultural land but again, it, 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 not enough 
to feed 22 million people. They had previously bought most of their food from eastern Germany, the great bread baskets, and, and you know where, the, where all of, of the eastern provinces uh, of Poland, uh, what was now Polish, uh, had Silesia and Prussia and and and, and, and Pomerania and all these other places, uh, which were now, of course, in Soviet hands. Now the Soviets were supposed that was the agreement between the four powers to supply the Western zones with the kind of food of which there would probably be a surplus in their zone in exchange for the various things that they got, particularly the, uh, the reparations and, and the kind of dismantling of factories which would be shipped off to Russia. Uh, but they didn't. Uh, the British and the Americans kept delivering their stuff to the Russians, but they didn't get the food from. So there we are. We had a situation, but it was perfectly obvious by the summer of 1945 that it was going to be a hell of a job uh, running this zone. Um, because if you're taking, everybody wanted to have some kind of extract reparations from Germany. It was not only for economic reasons, but for moral reasons. It was felt, you know, um, they had wrecked half of Europe and half of Europe was starving in the aftermath of war. Why should they not suffer? Was very much the feeling. However, you were then placed with the problem, okay, how are they to produce goods and things to buy things with, uh, to live, to eat, uh, or are we going to have to feed them? I'm basically going to have 22 million Germans on the dole, so to speak, who we have to provide food for. And that's basically the situation the British uh, government was faced with uh, in the summer of 1945. And it took them about two years at least uh, to, to figure out how to deal with that. And that by that time, of course, they'd gone in with the Americans and formed Bizonia and with the French Trizonia, and we were on our way into the Western German Federal Republic that appeared in 1949. So it was, it, 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 it was I say, as I say, the most difficult of the zones to run, particularly for a country in Britain's situation. In 1946-47, something like 80 million pounds, that's 1947 values, um, had to be put into importing food from abroad uh, at the British taxpayers' expense into the um, into the British zone. You can guess how popular that was with many taxpayers uh, in Britain itself. Uh, somebody commented when they introduced bread rationing in Britain, which they hadn't had during the war in 1946. So we're paying reparations to the Germans now, are we? <laughs> But despite all of these uh, difficulties that you describe, uh, you're still sharply critical, aren't you, in your book about the way that the occupying uh, powers conducted themselves um, in Germany. Can you give an example or perhaps an anecdote that you think exemplifies this this problem that you see with, with their conduct? It's interesting that even a man like Humphrey Jennings, the famous documentary filmmaker, who I've met before because I wrote a book about the bombing of Coventry and he was actually making a film and dashed down to Coventry shortly after the bombing and uh, and turned it into his film, is it, is it Listening to Britain, uh, which appeared in 1941. He was also uh, making documentaries in the British zone. And even he, a man of considerable sensibility, um, didn't feel much... He he. he he epitomised the kind of paradox of the British position of intelligent 
British officials and, and people operating within the British zone. Um, on the one hand, he joked about the so-called Dusseldwarves, um, as he called them. These, um, in, it went at, at the you know, HQ, British HQ in Dusseldorf, they had these rather obsequious German waiters um, you know, serving them their rather nice lunch that they would never get to eat themselves, the waiters, that is. Uh, on the other hand, he was, he was like that, and he saw that as, as part of the scheme of things that Germany should pay for what it had done. Um, on the other hand, he also wrote to his wife and said, basically, we can't go on like this. Um, sooner or later, uh, these people have to be productive, they have to eat, we have to allow them to recover. And so that happened, I think, all over the place. I mean, things took quite a while, probably the first, at least the first year and beyond, um, until I think some kind of modus vivendi came about between the British and the Germans. I'll just speak with about the British in this case. Um, it started off, I think, with the British being fairly well received. The Germans felt they had more in common with the British than, say, with the French or the Americans, uh, and certainly with the Russians. Uh, but then things went haywire with the food supply and with the um, dismantling of factories, taking away German livelihoods, in other words, stopping them from making a living so they could actually afford to eat decent food. Um, and things got very bad, I think, in 1946-47. There were eventually uh, food riots uh, in, 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 in most of the major industrial towns. Because, of course, in the countryside, people could always somehow get food. That's generally true in any situation um, like that. Um, but in the cities, unless they went outside the cities, which some did at the weekends to try to get food, um, you were reliant on what you could get handed out to you in the, in the shops uh, or whatever places you were given to collect your rations. And those rations were miserable. I mean, there were less than a thousand calories a day um, at various points from 1946-47, particularly during the harshest, harsh winter of 46-47. It's harsh in Britain too. Um, eventually, the modus vivendi went that the Germans found a way of tolerating the British and the British found a way of which they knew they had to pretty early on, actually, but eventually had to actually find a way of doing it without embarrassing themselves, of allowing Germany to return to... I mean, they were still blowing up the Blumenvoss um, uh, shipyards in Hamburg uh, in, in, in 1947, um, which again caused some rioting, actually, uh, among German workers who could see, again, see their livelihood being taken away from them. It was a slow process, but that modus vivendi came back from initial acceptance, feeling that the British kept their word, they were gentlemanly, they were efficient. After all, they'd been running an empire for all this time, rather, which a lot of Germans looked upon with considerable envy, realising that the British were, A, not as nice as they thought they were, which we all know, being British, um, but, but they had to find out. And secondly, um, that... Um, they weren't as efficient as they thought they were. Um, and so one of the problems was that the, almost everything that the British 
administration in Germany did had to be referred back to London, any major decisions anyway. And then was usually they usually run it through with the Americans to see what the Americans thought. And so it could be weeks or even months before anything actually happened once a problem had been identified. It was a typical kind of, um, you know, arm's length, long distance um, governing of a country which, which sort of never works. Uh, and unlike colonial governors, for instance, in the British Empire, um, the military government, and they were mostly military people who were not very good at governing countries by and large, um, for various reasons, um, weren't really in a position to make their own decisions. Uh, the reasons for the failures in the British zone are specific, some are specific to the British zone, some are just general, which all the major occupying powers had, even the Russians who could do much as they wished. Um, so that was the failure, and it definitely was a failure. We can talk about successes in a minute if you want, because there were some of those as well. Uh, but it, 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 it was a failure. The first, I mean, people have made comparisons, and then obviously people looked after the conquest of Iraq uh, in 2003. People said, oh, well, do, would you like the Allies did after the war in, 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 in Germany? I don't think they'd read the literature. <laughs> On the um, subject of those thousand daily calories, I interviewed a retired German politician a few months ago who'd been a seven-year-old boy in the British zone at the time. And he recalled how they would get a daily ration alternating between pea soup and biscuit soup. And sometimes the British soldiers would um, give them the original biscuits that the biscuit soup was made from. And that was, that was the if kind of great lucky, treat. If they were lucky, yeah. But to pick up the Iraq analogy, I, th I think there's an interesting question here, which is, we know from the files that the CIA has released in recent years that um, even before the war had ended, the more forward-thinking parts of the American military and intelligence establishments were looking at the Third Reich administration and thinking, who are the guys that we're going to cling on to and bring back when all this is over to help us rebuild Germany after the war? And they reached for some very questionable figures like Hans Globko, who we talked about earlier. Oh, yeah. And um, Reinhard Galen, the, um, the spymaster who ended up running... A huge clandestine spying organization that became ultimately Germany's foreign he intelligence. He benefited service. from the clean Wehrmacht myth, Galen, right. I think. Yes. So, to, to go back to this Iraq analogy, to what extent is this a trade off between stability on the one hand and uh, whatever you want to call it, justice on the other? If the Allies had gone in harder on denazification the way that the coalition did with debathification in Iraq, could it have ultimately? produced a more kind of unstable West German state? Yes, I think it would have. Um, listen, some of the Nazis, particularly the top ones, were so appalling that something had to happen. And there had to be some kind of illustration of, 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 of the fact that crime doesn't pay, if you will, um, uh, hence the Nuremberg trials. Um, but, but I think a country has to function. There's a, there's a wonderful, in, in, in the archives, I found this wonderful correspondence about a potato merchant in Lower Saxony somewhere. I can't remember exactly where it was. Um, and he was a notorious local Nazi. Sadly, he was also the only people who could shift potatoes around the areas, source and shift potatoes around the area and feed everybody. And, gen and generally speaking, 
I think there were probably hundreds of examples like this where people just said, look, we know this guy's, you know, a nasty piece of work. Um, on the other hand, everybody's got to eat and we have to make, you know, have to make things work. Uh, there was always a slight element of worrying that even though the Germans were beaten, cowed, etc., as far as um, you know, the Allies could see or like to see things, there was all this slight notion that um, there might be an uprising if things get too bad. Uh, you know, there was the whole little minor sensation of the werewolves uh, in 44, 45, and that, that put the wind up a few people. Lunenburg Heath was one of their favourite haunts, and that was in the British zone. Um, so... Yeah, <laughs> basically. I mean, interestingly, when they when they when they did have the big concentration camp trials in the British zone, a they used the British um, uh, legal system, so it was so it was adversarial, which the the, the the continental systems by and large are not. And secondly, they ended up only prosecuting for the murder of non-German citizens. Um, because they didn't feel they could make it stick legally if they you know, started trying to prosecute them for killing Germans, which presumably inc included German Jews. Um, so people went on trial, people were sent to Nuremberg and, uh, and on the various, you know, subsidiary uh, trials that were part of the Nuremberg process. Uh, but basically the British, it took longer for the Americans to see that particular light, but I think the British did by and large act pragmatically. Uh, unless it was so obviously outrageous to let people off, they would tend to kind of, you know, there was a bit of a nod and a wink going on uh, a lot of the time. You have to make a country work. Um, if, if, if only for purely practical and pragmatic reasons, yeah, you can punish the people, but then sooner or later you're going to drive them into some kind of, uh, if not open rebellion, at least they can make your life extremely difficult. I mean... In Bad Oinhausen, in uh, uh, the top end of Westphalia, bordering on uh, Lower Saxony, was the British HQ. Uh, they all they all actually choose spa towns for the same reason that after they got kicked out of Paris, uh, Pétain's government went to uh, to Vichy, which is in spa towns. There are lots of empty hotel rooms. Um, so the British went to Bad Oinhausen and then several other spas in the area as well. Uh, the Americans had their uh, uh, HQ in Wiesbaden uh, and the French in Baden-Baden. Uh, uh, the German, the, the, the Russian stuck was Karlshorst, uh, which is a, a Prussian symbol. Uh, and, uh, but then they're the Russians. Uh, but um, what they did simply was to kick several thousand Germans out of their homes in the middle of Bad Oinhausen, run barbed wire around the edge of it, and, and put their British officers, officials, and as time went on, their families uh, into that central area in the town. Uh, and it caused considerable outrage. In fact, it caused, in a way, a kind of efflorescence of, 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 of civic activism because they founded a, a Bürger Initiative, and if they called it that at the time, but that's what it was, to basically uh, fight and complain about the British expropriating everybody in the town, near as damn it. Uh, so democracy was learned in all kinds of comfortable and uncomfortable ways i think as a result so with these uh, huge problems obviously and compromises made at 
strategic level, if you will, at political level, at government level, did uh, denazification work more easily and more smoothly um, on a sort of cosmetic level? So what happened to all of the Nazi architecture, the street names, and then all of those swastikas that the Nazis plastered everywhere? <laughs> no, they got rid of all that. I mean, um, the British had a problem also, uh, which the Americans didn't have to the same extent, because there were lots of people with the American forces who were either recent emigres or, um, say, second-generation immigrant from second-generation German immigrant families who spoke German. Think of Henry Kissinger uh, uh, running Krefeld after the Americans took it as a, as a as a private first class, I think, uh, because he was the only one they could find who spoke German. But la later on, there were many, many more um, German speakers. The British had almost none. So, and they didn't have, like the Russians had the tame communists to run uh, uh, their zone for them. Um, they basically had to hand over an awful lot of things to the Germans because it, it was impossible for them to communicate with the population otherwise or get anybody to do anything. Um, you did have some English-speaking Germans, usually upper class, often therefore Nazis, uh, which was a problem. They tended to be more um, uh, believable uh, uh, to the the British, uh, they liked them better than surly German-speaking working-class types, um, and so, but they had to do something, and they had to. So, in a way, necessity, I think, forced early uh, an early delegation, and that's true in the denazification process as well uh, in the British zone compared with 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 perhaps other zones. There's a terrific John le Carre novel that he wrote after he'd been posted to Bonn, um, called A Small Town in Germany, which is set in Bonn. And he imagines all of these shadowy post-Nazi figures in the West German administration conspiring with a, a right-wing demagogue, basically, to try and sort of restore some sort of um, kind of right-wing populist government to West Germany. And it's clearly a scenario that had haunted British intelligence and the Foreign Office after the war. And I think you even get kind of lingering echoes of it in the way we talk about the alternative for Germany, the, the, the kind of biggest right-wing populist party in Germany at the moment. And so for me with denazification, the, the, really the million dollar question is why a far-right restoration was never really on the cards, despite these networks of shadowy people really having been there in the government. And um, despite the the allied the allied occupation having let so many sleeping dogs lie, well, it's interesting. The the the, 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 the party actually that, that that above all there were things like the Reichspartei and so on, which, which were sort of relatively obscure neo-Nazi fronts. But the real attempts at infiltration occurred in the FDP in the early 50s and uh, mid 50s. A lot of the media crowd uh, from Goebbels' ministry uh, moved in there. Um, I think they didn't get the votes. I think people were too well aware, voters, German voters, were too well aware of the catastrophe that um, 
Hitlerism, whatever they thought about it at the time, eventually caused uh, to vote in large numbers for these people. I mean, there weren't no Nazi voters after, after uh, at that point, but I wouldn't have think there'd be more than say ten percent, fifteen percent. You know, it's just a wild guess. But I mean, um, so yes, one would worry about these things. Yes, you could worry about them infiltrating the government. But you know, a lot of the people who um, would be called kind of notorious Nazis of one sort or another, have been opportunists in their day. Everybody talks about the Mautzkefallene and so on, you know, the ones who joined the um, Nazis when they saw which way the wind was blowing in 1933, you know, 32-33. And they were now prepared, seeing that they could actually get back into some kind of exercise, some real power in the country, as long as they kept up the democratic facade. Uh, They now operated um, within the system as it stood in West Germany, which actually until the 60s was pretty conservative. I mean, I, I think a lot of people running West Germany in the early 1950s would have had a lot more in common with the AFD than they would with most of the modern CDU. Um, that they they could essentially return to power as long as they, you know, put on um, sheep's clothing. Uh, and after a while, you know, like cognitive behavior theory, if you do, if you do it long enough, um, you convince yourself that that this is how things are now. And that, I think, is what happened in a lot of cases. Uh, probably after a few drinks, you know, they start getting a bit nostalgic, maybe. But uh, uh, so I, I, th- I, think, I think this paranoid notion of the return of the, the Nazis is kind of understandable, particularly if you've been through the war. Uh, but uh, was essentially, I think, unrealistic. I think it's taken a whole lifetime uh, for a large number of Germans to um, start getting a bit itchy again for uh, that kind of thing. Well, on that troubling note, then let's uh, wrap things up. Um, that was absolutely fascinating, Fred. Thank you very much for helping us to explore this you know, still quite sensitive subject, which still seems to trouble Germany deeply, um, even today, and will probably continue to do so for some time. Um, indeed, you've published widely on some of uh, Germany's other scarring moments as well, such as Dresden bombings and the Berlin Wall. Um, Frederick Taylor's books are all very highly recommended, and they're very readable um, and full of fascinating anecdotes, um, as you know, we've seen today as well. So thank you very much, Fred, um, for being with us today. Great. Lovely to meet you both. Goodbye then from Sussex. And Elf Peterson from Berlin. Goodbye.